Welcome to episode 28 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined live from the beautiful campus of Grace College and Theological Seminary by my good friend, my co-worker, and the man who may go bankrupt trying to grow grass in his yard, John Sloat. Doc, what's happening? Well, we I'm back from vacation. Yeah, how, how, was, uh, how was the beaches of... Uh... <laughs> Well, I guess not the beaches, but the definitely cor- not the, the beaches the, of Omaha. The the cornfields of Omaha, Nebraska. Definitely not the beaches of Omaha. Um, yeah, so we had a good time in Omaha. It was good to see family, and uh, you know, a little different just because of the um, the restrictions of COVID. Not a lot of things are open, but one cool thing was since we were there over the Fourth of July weekend, that um, there's just a culture there of. Lots of individual people do their own fireworks, so not as much the go to a big show somewhere. Yeah, but the neighborhood that my family lives in, um, pretty much almost everybody on their little cul-de-sac uh, bought fireworks, and so we shot them off in the cul-de-sac, and then that was true of like all the different cul-de-sacs That's in their fun. development. And my um, my family has a uh, their deck sits out and looks over a hill, and you could see. Like uh, in a 180 degree direction in terms of just different fireworks going off from like nine o'clock at night till like midnight. And we're not talking just little like, you know, two dollar ones. We're like, oh, that was but like almost professional quality. People are dropping thousands of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. The mortars with the with the bangs and the yeah. reports. And, yeah. So, yeah. No, that's that nice. Fun. Yeah. I grew up in a neighborhood like that. That was a lot of some fond memories of, uh, of doing that. Yeah. So. I feel like we need an update on the grass. Yeah, it's remaining green okay. through this drought uh, season that we're in. So this last week, I would say the area got quite a bit of rain, but it okay. avoided my house at all costs. <laughs> um, so there was no free water dumped. Um, gotcha. So we have kept the grass alive, and we've gotten some rain in the last couple of days. And so it's uh, it seems to be doing pretty well. So I'm encouraged as I was looking at it this morning. Good, good. Well, as always, you can reach out and connect with us on Twitter at VNSPod. You can email the show, variousandsundrypodcast at gmail.com. And we have a Facebook page. We'd love for you to go ahead and like that, to uh, follow that. And in particular, we have asked for listeners to provide us with content, in particular asking for content for a Q&A episode. Mm-hmm. And we've had some initial responses. We have three or four questions. We need more. Yeah, we we need a few more. If we're gonna, we can maybe get a segment out of three or four questions, yeah. but we need we need more. Yeah, we we just um, every time we've asked our listeners to step up, they've done it, and so I'm I'm hopeful that by asking them t- today in this episode sternly, yeah, uh, I wouldn't say sternly. <laughs> I, I, I we, we we're asking for your help, listeners. Help us help you mm. i think is kind of the the vibe we're going for here yeah and uh and we haven't had a review in a while either yeah going on uh, 11 days as of today we're recording on uh, july 14th that's so. a sad reality yeah just making the observation hmm. do with that as you please listeners in any case um we are continuing our discussion of gentle and lowly and uh, we are going to talk at least briefly about chapters 9 through 16, so kind of the middle third of the book. 
And um, yeah, just you want to start us off in terms of things that caught your attention? Yeah, more more of the same in a good way, Mm -hmm. I'd say. Uh, Just deep reflection on the heart of Christ, uh, what Christ has done for us, and how he has uh, cared for us in a number of ways. Um, I particularly enjoyed his chapter on uh, Christ's advocacy, uh, the beauty of his heart, um, mercies. all, all, all of those were uh, deeply encouraging to me. Um, how about how about yourself? Yeah, lots of lots of good stuff um, there in chapter ten. I think that he made some some helpful observations about when we tend to think about God's glory as a starting point. We often begin with His power. Hmm. That I think a lot of us may think of when we think of God's glory. What comes to mind? We think, wow, he is powerful to create. You know, you're standing before the ocean or the Grand Canyon or mountain ranges, and you're like, wow, I'm overwhelmed with the glory of God displayed in his creative power. And yet, I think what that chapter helps to show is that while that is absolutely true, there is an even more profound sense in which when you think about God's glory biblically, it is most deeply rooted in his mercy Mm -hmm. and his grace and his covenant faithfulness to his people. That that is, uh, in in many respects, drawn from Exodus 34, 6 through 7, which he then has a whole chapter, chapter 16, uh, where he talks about that key passage. And, you know, if you're not, uh, that's not fresh in your mind, that's the passage where, God says to Moses, uh, this is in the context of the golden calf incident, and Moses prays for uh, them, for God to forgive Israel. And in the context of that, Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to walk by me. You can't, I'm going to walk by you. You can't see my face, but you can see my backside. And then in Exodus 34, God passes by him and he proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, um, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, showing steadfast love and mercy to you know thousands of generations, mm-hmm. that, that whole thing. And um, that ultimately in the context, it's if you want to know my glory, like it's God proclaiming his name as the one who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. And so that's just a beautiful reminder that, that central to who God is, is his love his mercy his grace and uh that 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 is the essence of his glory and he and uh in that chapter uh, the beauty of the heart of christ he does so by looking at one of jonathan edwards sermons about uh, that he preached to the children of his church mm-hmm. which was yeah. just a really beautiful picture of, of um who's widely recognized as probably the greatest american philosopher and theologian ever yeah, certainly um, up there. Um, He's from that period, yeah. Yeah, certainly from that period, who is preaching to the little children in his church, um, which was just a a stunning picture to, th- to think about and then to uh, to think about him and, teaching on God's and heart and maybe glory. Maybe just a, a little different from children's messages that we might see in churches today, just maybe. Just a smidge. A smidge, you I know. Mean, you know, so it it is, it's, it's an endearing picture to think about of Edwards preaching that to, you know, children. Um, and I think that, again, it's just striking how, how comfortably and familiar, familiar, familiarly, 
Is that a word? I'm not sure. Uh, You're usually the expert on okay. words. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> how, how, how comfortably, that's a word. Yeah. How comfortably <laughs> uh, Dane moves back and forth between Puritans, biblical text, Per, you know, uh, driving home application in 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 the contemporary context, and so um, I think that's part of what makes the book so compelling is his seamless ability to move in and out of those and not f- have it feel clunky. Like, okay, I'm going to talk about the Puritans now. Okay, I'm going to talk about the biblical text now. Like, it, it just feels yeah. very seamless. Well, and it's it's clear that he has spent not just this book project sitting in the Puritans in Scripture, but many, many years sitting in the Puritans in Scripture, you know, and to be able to weave them together the way he does is really, really quite excellent. And it's it's fun to read through the fruit of his labor. Yeah. There's also a chapter in there, uh, it's chapter 12, where he talks about the decline of friendship and um, Jesus as a friend. Yeah. Which I thought was really, really well done. And, you know, maybe that's something that We'll, we'll circle back to as a topic at some point in terms of uh, friendship. What, is, what, is, what does friendship look like? Why is it on the decline? But, um, you know, he, he, he starts that chapter by talking about the uh, studies that have been done that show the decline of friendship. And I think that's in particularly true when it comes to male friendships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That um, my own experience resonates with what what Dane writes in there in terms of that seems to be on the decline that the number of men I think uh, of my age that I think have a large number of good friends is is pretty small in terms of uh, there's a lot of acquaintances and sure but in any case uh, highlighting Jesus as a friend that um, in our deepest and darkest areas of life he remains. He he isn't. He isn't repulsed by that. He he is, in some sense, drawn to it because he wants to show us mercy. Yeah. Uh, goodness, there's so much good writing on friendship and the way friendship has developed uh, and changed over the years, based on what well, we as a society and those different things. But yeah, I, I think friendship would be a great uh, topic for us to discuss at another at a, at a later date, which which might be worth making note of. That's what I'm doing right now yeah. because, you know, we hate to make these statements on the pod and then forget about it. So it's it's down. It's 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 in the notes. So, well, we did want to touch on uh, – well, before we get to sports, uh, we should mention we did interview – Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah. Dane yesterday. Yesterday, the uh, – what was yesterday, the 12th? 13th. 13th. And so um, had a great conversation with Dane. We are – very excited to share that episode, which will be in two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. So not. So that will be episode thirty, I guess. Thirty. Yeah, um, I I think the interview went even better than we could have hoped. Yeah, Dane he is was engaging, so great, passionate, yeah. um, and so if you if you've even if you haven't necessarily been following along with the book, I think if you listen to him talk about it, you're going to want to read it. Oh so, yeah. So even if you haven't been following along with us. Um, you're going to want to listen because it's it's really uh, a, a great conversation. Okay, so when it comes to the world of sports, John, what's going on? You know, the last time we recorded was probably a week and a half ago. 
Because because we put yeah. one in the can because you were going on vacation, right? Yeah, it was before July fourth. It's like the third or second, maybe. Yeah. So a lot has gone on. Yeah. Um, the NBA has congregated at the bubble uh, known as Disneyland. Yes. And uh, there's some interesting stuff going on there. <laughs> there definitely um, is. I heard that the NBA supplied uh, uh, guys to disc jockeys, the guys that were spinning records, basically creating a club atmosphere. Yeah. And at one In of the connection with a pool party, basically yes. a pool party. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and only one person showed up. It was Dwight and Howard. And it was Dwight Howard. <laughs> yes. And so he is, uh, I think he's six foot 11 and he's oh, yeah. huge and he's the only he's one, that, yeah. you know, he's the only one basically at this pool party. Yeah. Uh, and and are there not reports of at least one or two incidents of um, people being smuggled into the bubble? I've heard of one, one okay. um, of, okay. uh, of somebody smuggling in a uh, companion of yeah. sorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so that's that's interesting. So that that's going on right now. And we're about, I think, two weeks. They, they start end of the month for games. Is that right? Thirtieth, I think. July thirtieth. So a little over two weeks. Um, away. Russell Westbrook has tested positive and staying at home yep. uh, at the moment. Uh, not then, in, not in the bubble. So he tested positive before mm-hmm. he left, and so they're keeping him away until he clears the. Is it ten days or is it fourteen? I can't remember. I want to say ten. Okay. Uh, but uh, so that's go, that's what's going on in the NBA baseball. There's a lot going on. We're 10 days from games, from live, yeah. real games, um, which is very exciting. And there's a lot going on with the Mets. Mm-hmm. First of all, Robinson Cano, our second baseman, has not shown up to camp yet, uh, which speculation is swirling that he has the coronavirus and is quarantining until he can uh, get rid of it. But uh, the other thing that's big with the Mets is that they're selling and so there are two main bidders, and you're going to love this. <laughs> One of them is Alex Rodriguez, Jennifer Lopez. There's also a billionaire in there. Uh, Travis Kelsey. Um, Tied in for the Chiefs. And, and a few other uh, uh, big-name sports okay. characters right. in there. The other is a guy who's relatively unknown. His name is Steve Cohen. He's an investment banker, part owner of the Mets already. Mm-hmm. And he has enough money to outbid them no matter what. So so kind of the good money is on him. The okay. only thing that would set it apart is if the ownership of the Met, the current ownership of the Mets didn't want to sell to him, mm-hmm. which is also reported. Okay. But if he goes, oh, that's their offer, I'll give you another $500 million or yeah. something like that. That's yeah. going to be hard to turn down. Yeah, that's th- those are big dollar signs. And no matter how much you might dislike him, Money can talk. Yeah, yeah. His money's still green. <laughs> That's right. You know, it still spends. It's still, it's still good. And then, uh, and then the other piece of news is uh, your beloved college football seems to be in trouble. Yeah, yeah. It's it it's getting it's getting scary the, in, in terms of the prospects of a of a college football season. So the Ivy League canceled, which yep. really is no no big deal. No. Um, but the Big Ten was sort of the leader in the clubhouse to say, we're just doing in-conference games. Correct. Um, I don't believe the SEC has even announced that at this point. Yeah, but it's only a matter of time. Yeah, um, agreed. I, because, you know, inevitably when talk about non-conference games, not that they're scheduling Big Ten teams, but I know that Alabama did have a game with USC, and the Pac-12 has already said, we're not doing that. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of time before – the SEC 
all those Power Five conferences are going to get on the same page with that. So the question is, do you move football to the spring? Or is this just a domino eventually leading to the cancellation of all college football? That's hard to say. I think the difficulty with moving to spring is the NFL has come out and said, we're not changing the draft from April, which is the traditional window when the NFL draft takes place. And so if you have no football in the fall and you try to play it in the spring, uh, first of all, it gets complicated because of the weather and things like that. But sure. And more, more uh, I think, significant is the fact that what uh, motivation are the elite top-level players who are going out in the draft going to have to play? So a guy like Justin Fields, a guy like Trevor Lawrence, guys that are going to be surefire first-round picks. Guys that people tune in to see play. Right. Yeah. Um, the sort of financial incentive is very much against them playing, risking injury and, and such. And so that's going to be difficult to navigate and um, yeah, it's it is concerning, uh, in part because you know football is such a physical contact sport. You have the you know even the the crowd issues, and and you've got so many players, so that obviously increases the odds of people catching well, it. And so many players and so many coaches come along with football, and so yeah. many support staff. I mean, yeah, you're talking hun- hundreds of people for yeah. for a single team. Yeah, so I'm getting nervous about that. And then who knows what that means for the NFL. But, you know, at some level, too, there's so much money involved, John, that— I know. That I mean, I think I saw something where someone said that about 80% of the revenue for the Power Five conferences comes from football. Mm. If you don't have a football season, what does that mean for those athletic departments? Yeah, it's it's not good. For those institutions. I mean— I know at Ohio State, the football program more or less funds the entire uh, athletic program. I think their basketball team makes a little bit of money. But everything else loses money. So all of the sports, rowing, synchronized swimming, gymnastics, wrestling, all those things, those are money losers. Yeah. And so the football program covers it because they generate millions of dollars that help fund that. And the TV money particularly. Exactly. Yeah. So then when you take that away, what happens to those programs? You know, are you going to see, I mean, Stanford already cut 11 programs they announced. I saw that. Yeah. I was just thinking what school cut it, but it was Stanford. Yeah. yeah. That's. So I the, mean, ne- the next year is going to be fascinating money, in, in the sports world. Money is such a big factor that you're going to have, you're going to, if it's at all feasible to do a football season, it's going to happen at some level. Yeah. There's just too much money. And one other sports note, we have to move on, but uh, the Washington football team football team <laughs> uh, is no longer going to be known as the Redskins. That's right. But they have not announced what they're replacing that with, correct? Uh, yeah, because they were going to announce yesterday, but there were some trademark problems with it. Uh, so they're working out the trademark. I had heard whispers it was the Red Bulls. The Red Bulls, really. I had heard Red Tails. Okay. Which is apparently, from what I understand, the first African-American fighter pilot group. Okay. So it's a nod to the military. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Um, Who knows? But um, The Red Bulls. I had not heard that one. Which, if that's the case, you could understand, obviously, there's a Red Bull drink. There's a soccer club, I think, that all— Yeah, the New York Red Bulls. Yeah. So— 
I, that could be wrong. Who knows? That's not confirmed. If you, if you want to have a good time, go to the Vegas odds and see what the odds are, the gambling <laughs> odds of uh, what the Vegas, what the Washington's yeah. name will be. I believe 100 to 1 is the snowflakes. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, no chance of that. <laughs> which, I, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to know who's putting money down on that. <laughs> In any case, uh, our, our, our main topic for today in some ways as a follow-up from our two-part episode on the kingdom of God and social justice, is how to disagree graciously. And so um, maybe we can start by, um, why is that so difficult in our culture today? Why do you think that's so rare? Because I think we can all readily admit it's rare to see gracious disagreement take place in our public square, on social media, even in personal interactions, oftentimes, it's not that common to see gracious disagreement. So why do you think that is? Why is it so rare? Um, uh, sin, <laughs> the, the short answer. <laughs> okay. Right, right. Um, we all want to be seen as, and we all want to be proven right mm-hmm. um, at, at, at some level. We all want to, as, as uh, Dane would say, be an advocate for ourselves, right? Yep. And we want to be able to be uh, seen as right. I think it's modeled for us. Um, on a on the political stage, uh, where everything is modeled as a zero sum game, yes. Um, and when when everything is a zero sum game, everything is basically zero. Like like right. no no one's going to get anything, right? Um, yeah. But any 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 thoughts on on your end? Why 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 is that so difficult? Yeah, I mean, I think that you've definitely hit on um, some of the key factors. I think social media in particular, has intensified that. I think it started with the 24-hour news cycle, you know, the, the constant cable news availability. And, uh, but social media has allowed people to interact in a non-face-to-face manner. And I think all of us would acknowledge that it is far easier to say sharp, biting potentially even mean or snarky things in a context of social media than it is to do it directly to someone's face. Mm -hmm. And so when you're fed a steady diet of that, where you're able to, by your phone or by your keyboard, to be able to just fire off a snarky comment or some just, you know, very pointed uh, comment about an issue on social media without having to look the other person in the in the eyes and mm-hmm. say those words that that has created this larger environment i think and i think in addition to that i don't think the social media companies are necessarily helping us uh, disagree better because when we post something like that the algorithm within whether it be facebook twitter instagram will continually feed us more posts like that yeah um, and create it ends up creating something of a mob quotes yep. uh, mentality. Yeah. And I think that our larger culture within the political realm in particular has created this context where you've got uh, you've got the language of it and then you've got the reality of it, of culture wars. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're at war, then that, that justifies, you know, um, harsh measures, right? Yeah, you know, it, it, there's the difference between the the, the the a sort of small conflict, you know, versus the well, if we're at war, then 
load all the weapons. Yeah. You know, blast away. This is war. We have to win. They have radical views that are right. going to be harmful to us. Right. You know? And so the la- the, the language yeah. ratchets up and the mm-hmm. um, just the the increase, it, it, it tends to then increase the sort of tribalism, the, the us versus them, whoever you think the us is versus the them. And uh, it, it ends up, you, you end up objectifying the opponent, mm-hmm. right? You, you end up, instead of thinking of them as a human being, you think of them as a, as a viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Something to be defeated, something to Correct. be attacked, something to be removed from your path. Correct. And so um, I, I think that when I, when I reflect on, on these things, they're, they're really kind of two biblical passages that come to mind pretty readily. Um, I'll start with maybe a more obvious one, and that's uh, one of these little hidden gems in Philippians, Philippians 4, 3, where Paul basically says, um, I exhort Euodia and I exhort Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Mm-hmm. Now, you think, oh, what's the big deal? Well, it's one of the few, if any, places where you have Paul directly calling out people by name. And you have to remember, these letters were read out in the congregation. So imagine these two women sitting there and uh, the Epaphroditus, who probably read the letter, out to the church, is reading the letter. And it's like, oh, it's great. Our citizenship is in heaven. And then Paul makes this pivot and he's like, you two women, <laughs> knock it off. Yeah, yeah. And now it's recorded for, you know, it's, it's for, for the word of God. Yeah, you know, for eternity. For eternity. We're, we're going to be reading it yeah. for It'll a long, long time. It'll be fun to meet you, Odie yeah. and in, in in the new creation and be like, did you guys agree? What was going on? What was going on? What, did you, <laughs> what were you arguing about? But, you know, the, there's one of those places. And, and then Romans 14, where mm-hmm. Paul talks about, uh, differing perspectives on whether believers should follow the food laws or celebrate specific Jewish calendar festivals and that kind of thing. And he calls for believers to extend grace to one another mm-hmm. and to recognize um, their common bond in the Lord. So those are some of the key passages that come to mind. But what about um, beyond those things as sort of the foundation, any sort of key principles or, or things that, that, that you think of when we think about how is it that we can grow in disagreeing graciously with those that we uh, encounter? Yeah, I, I always think a good, a good rule of thumb um, is to—and I, I picked this up from uh, Don Carson and Tim Keller—but uh, be able to articulate your opponent's view in a way that they would say, yes, that's what I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because, because I, I think oftentimes, if we have an uh, an opponent we're working with, mm-hmm. and they we would caricature, we would we would paint their view in a certain way, which will create a straw man that we can easily defeat. Yeah, um, how, that that's the first one that comes to mind for me. How about yeah. yourself? Well, I've got a story on that one. One of my oh, favorite yeah. stories from seminary. I audited a class with uh, Doug Moo on Romans. Okay. So he's he's written, you know, arguably the definitive commentary on Romans sure. in the English language. One Certainly of the tallest one. Pauline scholars ever. <laughs> yeah. A solid six eight, six yeah, yeah. six eight's probably good. <laughs> um, and so I'm auditing a class on Romans, and we are in Romans nine, one of the more debated chapters in terms of 
Calvinism, Arminianism, free will, predestination, all that. And so in his commentary, uh, Moo takes the more Calvinistic position. And so a student, as we're getting to this discussion, student raises his hand and basically says, I'm paraphrasing, but um, I can't believe how anyone would actually think the Arminian position is true. And, and kind of expecting Moo to chime in with the, yeah, how, how can anyone think to throw that? Down, yeah, just, throw down on just, the Arminians. Just sort of join yeah. in the, like, yeah, let's take the pot shots at the Arminians. And it was the most remarkable, one of, maybe the most remarkable thing, at least the short list, that I've seen in a, in a seminary classroom. It's like a switch flipped, and he started articulating the Arminian position and giving arguments for it, scriptural basis, and all these sorts of things. And he was doing it in such a persuasive way that I remember thinking, did he change his mind? <laughs> did, did he change his mind from what he wrote in his commentary? Yeah. And he went on for like five or seven minutes just off the top of his head, rolling out these arguments. And then he stopped and said, now, I don't think that's the correct interpretation of Romans 9. <laughs> but if we're going to disagree with it, we're going to disagree with the best and most accurate presentation of that view before we, you know, trot out a caricature. So essentially, let's be better than that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's a great il- illustration, and I think we see that see that happen so many times where we're willing to make a caricature of a position just to defeat it. Yeah, and it's easy and it's lazy. Um, so there's definitely a temptation for that. I'd say another thing that would go a long way towards helping us out in in these conversations is to adopt a posture of both humility, Mm -hmm. meaning that that we recognize we could be wrong. Yeah. A a posture of humility that says— That's such an important statement to make in these conversations. I'm not God, so I don't have exhaustive knowledge. And that— I think we tend to see that as we think that's going to make us weak Mm -hmm. if we acknowledge that, but— I think, in fact, it doesn't at all. It, it, it acknowledges that we are fallen creatures. We have limited knowledge. And we can be very confident that we're right in a position or in a belief. That, but that doesn't preclude us saying, I could be wrong. And I'm open to hearing what you have to say. Mm-hmm. And then the, 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 the sort of related principle to that is pursuing love. Mm-hmm. And that gets at... That's another image bearer that's talking to me right now. And I would want them to treat me with respect and dignity and uh, to, to take my words seriously and not to, to essentially think the best, not the worst. If that's how I'd want to be treated, I should treat the other person. It's the golden rule applied to these conversations, really. Sure. Yeah, and I, th- I think within Pursue Love— um, I think at times we can label people as having radical views or mm-hmm. uh, something like that as a way to not do this, as a, as a reason to not do this. But but I would say to, to constantly reminding ourselves that is an image bearer, um, and uh, and I am called to love them regardless of their views. Um, yeah. In in this situation, and and in love, give them pushback to their views. That's, right. That's absolutely part of it. Correct. Yeah, we, we want to make sure that we're not heard as saying that means that you just, you know, don't give any pushback or don't, 
you know, present counter arguments back or counter evidence. But it, it does mean that you give the other person a fair hearing mm-hmm. and try to understand them on their own terms rather than just caricature or dismiss someone. Um, and I think this is a, a, a good place for us to make it clear, like, you and I don't agree no, we don't. on everything. We and agree on quite a bit. We agree on quite a bit. But not everything. But not everything. And, and we've had disagreements more in the in the area of culture and politics. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I know that that has been a sharpening experience for me to hear you give me pushback at points if I'll advocate for something or propose a view or a policy or make some sort of statement. And you'll say, well, actually, um, I mean, I think we – I think of a recent example. I won't give the specific content, <laughs> but um, you know, we had a text exchange last week yeah. about a particular issue where um, there was disagreement, mm-hmm. and I found it very helpful. And you, at, at points, helped to clarify some misunderstandings I had of the issue. Mm-hmm. And you know, I you heard me out as I expressed concerns about uh, how that issue is being you know handled and i i walked away thinking that was good i had a better understanding of this now and i feel like yeah i I thought of the same thing as we were discussing this that that text conversation that was also very sharpening for me yeah and as a side note though I, i will say oftentimes those conversations are very difficult to have by text yeah now i think it can be done between the two of us because we have an established friendship that goes a ways back and is is deep. And mm-hmm. so even if I read one of your texts and go, huh, what? Like, I, I'm not going to jump to the worst possible conclusion and then sure. just, you know, unload the cannons on you. <laughs> like, like, I can't believe you think that. What are you, what, what are you, lost your mind kind of stuff? Like, huh, maybe I've misunderstood John or, huh, maybe I need to ask another question to clarify what he means by that. So I, I think... Generally speaking, those conversations are far better in person. Yeah. The, the, only, <laughs> the only pushback I give to that is when, we're, when we text about those things, it gives me time to think and formulate a good sentence. That's true. You know? yeah. um, and sometimes in person, I, I can shoot from the hip a little bit more, mm-hmm. and that can get a little dicey. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So there are definitely advantages to that on the, on the sort of written end, if you want to call it that. With sure. The, uh, being able to slow down, process your thoughts, try to make them concise and clear. So that is definitely an advantage uh, on that front. But, um, I, and I do think that uh, that's made our friendship richer. Agreed. That we yeah. disagree on some of these things and we're able to uh, talk seriously about them and mm-hmm. also joke about it. Yeah, we joke about it regularly. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to get into the specifics of how we joke about it, but uh, but uh. <laughs> are, you, are you noticing the the remarkable self restraint that I'm demonstrating over here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, do we uh, do we want to turn our attention to some resources, or do you have any uh, any other uh, practical wisdom suggestions for uh, for uh, the podcasters out there? I was going to throw out a a you know, sort of bone to our listeners of if if you want to throw out a question related to some of our disagreements, we would consider that. Yeah, right? we consider that. Yeah. Yeah. No guarantees we'll answer it, but no. 
you know, if 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 you want to formulate a question for our Q and A episode of you know related to something regarding maybe an area where we disagree, then we'd we'd entertain that. So, Feel free, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm ready for resources. Okay. Um, the uh, do you want do you want to lead us through a, a, a couple of them and then I can do a couple of them as well. Well, I, I'll do the first one and then you can do the last two. Okay. Um, uh, Jonathan Haidt. Is that height? Height. Height. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's H A I D T. So it's yeah. You know. Yeah, it's a, it's an it's an odd spelling. For the sure. D is silent. You know, who knows? Welcome to English. Um, he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind: Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And um, from what I understand, the basic premise of the book is that people tend to reach conclusions and positions that they believe primarily based on emotion first, mm-hmm. and then they try to to marshal reason and evidence to support that, which is part of the reason why it's so difficult to disagree graciously, because we're not starting with reason and, and, and evidence and that sort of thing when it comes to formulating positions. And so uh, my good friend who's a prof at Spring Arbor, uh, an, another school in our athletic conference here at Grace, uh, who we were college roommates, and we disagree on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. He, he, he teaches in their Bible and religion department. And you know you could go down a lot of issues and, and say, uh, and basically, Rich thinks this. Matt thinks this opposite kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we just have the most incredible, uh, enjoyable conversations. And so he really highly recommends this book as a way of understanding why people are incapable often of disagreeing graciously. Yeah, I I think uh, the New York Times had that as their best book of 2015. Um, It was Mm -hmm. was quite popular. Um, And... uh, yeah, well worth well worth the read. It's a long book. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is a moral psychologist, I believe is how he classifies himself at the University of Virginia, I believe, and really helpful writer. Really, really, really thoughtful. Um, not not a believer by any stretch of the imagination, um, but we can certainly find areas of agreement here with him. And I do think um, absolutely, it's helpful to point out he's not a believer, but I do think he probably identifies. Even though he's coming from a secular perspective, something that's true biblically in terms of how sin and the fall warps our faculties, both at the emotional level sure. and the intellectual level and reason. And and even as believers, we still experience the consequences of that, even though God has redeemed us, that the, uh, as theologians call it, the noetic effects of sin hmm. continue on. Yeah, uh, that's a really helpful book. Um, if you're looking for something perhaps a bit shorter and from a from a more Christian perspective, uh, Rich Mao, Richard uh, Richard J Mao, that's M O U W, wrote a book uh, in '92 uh, of all times called "Uncommon Decency: hmm. uh, Christian Civility in an Uncivil World," uh, and then it was republished because I thought it was timely in 2010. <laughs> Uh, and so I think I think we're due. <laughs> yeah, we need to trot that thing back out. Yeah, I think we're due for another edition. Uh, he he lays out the the Christian case for civility, um, even going back to um, he uses a, he obviously uses a great deal of scripture, but also mm-hmm. uses uh, goes back to Greek philosophy and, and a number of things to. to Didn't make you point. have breakfast with him? I did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was I was at a conference, a random conference. I didn't know a soul there. 
and they were serving breakfast to everybody at the conference. It was mm-hmm. it was very uh, it was a very interesting conference. Anyway, but I'm sitting there and I uh, strike up a conversation with this guy from a Presbyterian Seminary in Texas, and he and I are talking, having a great conversation. And this older gentleman sits down next to us, and we both look at his tag, and we go, "That's Rich Mao." <laughs> That's Rich Mao, and yeah. uh, and he knew Grace Seminary, and uh, yeah. he's like, "Oh, I used to go to Winona Lake for this. I used to love to go to this place." And so we had a we had a great conversation. And he's he's been somebody that I I seek out his books when I can. Nice, nice. Yeah. And then that last one you're more familiar with, so I'll let you mention that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, John Stuart Mill is a uh, philosopher, and he's an English philosopher, 1700s, I want to say, um, and he wrote a book called On Liberty. Well, the second chapter of that book is called All Minus One. And so basically, it's a case for free speech and how to disagree well. Um, and one of the things he says in there is, you could be wrong, no, no, no matter what, you could be wrong, which we've already, we, we've already mm-hmm. said. So we're, we're philosophers now. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I have a, there's a free link. Um, Jonathan Hyde actually puts it out of an illustrated copy of that chapter. Okay. It's it's six, 7,000 words. It's not long. It's a good read, nice. um, and it's helpful. All right. We're, we're to our athlete now, episode 28. And we've got uh, a few candidates here. Let's start in the world of the NFL. Okay. We've got Marshall Falk, who started with the Colts, but then really came to prominence when he was traded to the Rams where he was part of that great Rams team at the end of the 90s, early 2000s, the, the greatest show on turf. Yeah, with, uh, with uh, Kurt, Kurt Warner. Warner. Yep. And so um, he was a, uh, a, a huge piece of that, very versatile running back. Uh, Daryl Green, who was a defensive back for the Redskins uh, and was, uh, for much of his career, considered the fastest man in the NFL. Hmm. And uh, you got another uh, NFL player for us there? Uh, Curtis Martin, or as uh, I believe Chris Berman would always say, Curtis, my favorite Martin. <laughs> uh, played for the Jets and the uh, the Patriots for a few years as well. Okay. Um, I think he's fourth or fifth on the all-time running, all-time yards uh, list. Um, ran uh, in the 90s and early 2000s for the Jets. Okay. And then from uh, the world of baseball, Burt Blylevin. Do you recognize that name? I don't. Okay. I don't. He's yeah. a pitcher for the, for the Twins. He pitched primarily. for 22 years? Yeah. Uh, not all for the, for the Twins, but he had the, one of the nastiest curveballs hmm. in, 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 in the major leagues. It, like, you know, it wasn't just one of these where it's like, oh, that kind of dropped a little bit. It was like a side-to-side kind of – it was like unhittable at points when he was on. So, hmm. uh, you know, a long, long career in the, in, in the majors there. Hmm. Uh, when it comes to Ohio State, we have Chris Beanie Wells. He was a running back for Ohio State from 2006 to 2008. Um, had a had a really good career that was hindered by some injuries, and that limited his um, his prospects in the pros. Yeah, but from, from the Akron area, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah big. He's like six six two. Mack truck of a dude, but surprisingly fast. Yeah. The, only, the only reason I know that is I my college roommate was from Akron. I think went to a rival high school of his yeah. and was always rooting for him. And I think at one point he had Akron buzzed into the side of his head. <laughs> Probably. Probably. 
Well, I think it's safe to say that I'm going to be unwilling, unable to convince you for a third straight week to name an Ohio State running back yeah. as the athlete. So I'm okay with going with a running back here. Um, we have a couple of good ones on the board. Yeah, yeah. So we can get rid of Daryl Green and Burt Blylevin. Um, and we did not discuss this in advance, so we did not. we'll have to yeah. hash this out. As per our tradition now. <laughs> um. Yeah, Curtis Martin has has a bit of my heart. So I ha- I have a, a card with a piece of his jersey in it. <laughs> so I'm a big Curtis Martin fan, and unless you're going to protest greatly. Okay. All right. Um, I-, I am willing to defer to you on this one, though um, I you're, you're good with that, even though he ended up playing some years for the hated New England Patriots. Well, it was the first couple years of his career, and he repented and, uh, <laughs> okay. and came over with Bill Parcells to, okay. the, to the Jets. All right, so we'll go with Curtis Martin. We'll, we'll, we'll go with that. So, All right, one thing you liked this week. Uh, so Andrea and I really enjoyed this week. Uh, we sat down and watched on her day off. Um, we, we watched uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, okay. the, basically the story of Queen, right. Freddie Mercury, um, Great, great movie. I thought the guy who played Freddie Mercury did a really, really good job. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the music was, of course, phenomenal. Yeah. So if you enjoy Queen, it's a, it's a wonderful movie. Uh, certainly not in the PG realm, but uh, <laughs> but wonderful movie nonetheless. There's some content there. Yeah, I mean, Freddie Mercury yeah, yeah. Was, was some content. Enough yeah. said, yeah. Uh, for me, uh, I finished... Uh, the book by Roland, I think it's Lazenby, Lazenby, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but uh, he wrote what is largely considered uh, the kind of the definitive biography of Michael Jordan. Hmm. It's called Michael Jordan, The Life, and it's like 670 pages, so it's... It's long. It is wow. long. Okay. Yeah. So it it, uh, it was very good, very enjoyable, and um, it... It only reinforced my impressions from the last dance of thinking, you know, he was the best basketball player I've ever seen, but not not a great human being in some ways, you know? Yeah. So just, uh, but interesting, you know? Uh, So that was my one thing I liked this week. But, well... Are we are we ready to call mission accomplished here? I think so. Yeah, yeah. This one felt especially all over the board in terms of what we discussed, well, right? We, yeah, we. I mean, we did four or five things. Yeah, yeah, gentle and lowly sports updates, and there was actually stuff to talk about with sports updates. How to disagree graciously. Um, Curtis Martin is our athlete, and then um, yeah, Freddie Mercury of all people popped up. You know. Freddie Special Mercury. appearance by Freddie Mercury in the podcast yeah. today. Yeah, I've been going on YouTube and watching interviews of Freddie Mercury. Gosh. He's a fascinating human. Yeah, yeah. So by definition, various and sundry. Mm-hmm. This is this is who we are and this is what we do, John. Yeah, and we do it well. <laughs> you know, I'll leave that for our listeners to decide. But, you know, hey, if, if you, if you want to continue to spread the good word about the Various and Sundry podcast and help us take over the world, we, we would greatly appreciate that. So we're going to call it Mission Accomplished. And yep. until next time, the Lord bless y'all real good. Later. Later.